Hey, uh, if you're visiting with us, my name is Mike, and uh, it's a real joy to have you with us today. Uh, this morning, before we get to Acts 27, actually, I want to read an email. This is an email that came through this morning from Carlos and Katrina Pease. Uh, Pease. They were here earlier this year, and this comes from them. If you don't know them, uh, they're living in Bogota, Colombia, and they write, uh, Hi. The last few days, there, have been a, there has been a lot of unrest in Colombia. Thursday was a national strike that started peacefully, but in the afternoon had turned to vandalism and violence. Yesterday, there was looting and violence in various parts of the country. In Bogota, many residents armed themselves with sticks to guard their properties against the looting. There was no transport since early afternoon, and soon there was a river of people walking home for hours. The violence worsened, and some buses and bus stations destroyed. There have been six deaths and one bomb. A curfew was put in place, but still groups protested, including many banging pots. There are many rumours about what is happening, but the best explanation that we have heard from various sources is that the socialism, socialism sorry if I can say that word, that has ruined Venezuela and allowed 1.5 million people to cross the border to Colombia is part of a strategy to cause fear and chaos and ultimately allow the left political party to come to power. The accents of the violent protesters apparently are Venezuelan. Most Venezuelans are true refugees, but others have come to cause unrest. Spiritually, through the protests and outcries, terror and panic has overcome the city of Bogota. And listen to this line. The atmosphere is dark and people are scared. Remember that line, please. The ministry, so the ministry they work at, cancelled today's Saturday activities. Our staff live in various parts of the city and we ask for prayer for protection, a spirit of love to cast out fear and ears to hear how to pray. There is limited transport this morning. Things are expected to get ugly this afternoon and evening. As a family, we live in a town near the city of Bogota. The protests in our area have been quieter. The curfews are in place and here shops are still open. Tomorrow, Sunday, Carlos is flying to a town on the border of Venezuela for our national YWAM conference. On Monday the 4th, uh, others of our staff will also travel. They will all return on Friday. Please pray that they can travel safely and there will be a power of prayer and unity. Blessings, Carlos and Katrina. We're going to pray for them at the end of the message, and I hope you will see why. But please remember that line, the atmosphere is dark and people are scared. Well, if you've got a Bible handy, grab it and follow along, please. Uh, we're in Acts 27, which as you can tell very easily, is close to the end of Acts. There is only one chapter after this. We are so close. But Acts 27, let me read it to you, starting at verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship for Adramantrium, if I said that right, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. 
The next day we landed at Sidon and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go with his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. Silent sea, it turns out. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed for the lee of Crete opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fear Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Calder, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Citrus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. 
when Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and keep them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. This is God's word to us. And in our passage, Paul is being taken to Rome to appear before Caesar, uh, but he doesn't go there alone. We know from our passage that Aristarchus and Luke, the author of Acts, are both with him. And aren't they good friends to be going with Paul? Quality friends. And I think we would all wish we had friends like Aristarchus and Luke. Friends who would literally go out of their way, uh, very out of their way, uh, to be with us and to, to support us. And uh, that's not just a nice thing, actually. That is something you and I are called to do for each other. Uh, in First John 3, verse 16, we're told, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Aristarchus and Luke are models of what we are called to do here. And it's quite possibly because Luke is on this trip himself that we have so many details about this voyage, don't we? It's a lot of details, isn't it? And I've got to say, though, this is not a cruise you're going to forget quickly, is it? And, you know, someone's done the maths on Paul's life and his travels that we have recorded for us in Acts And they've calculated that he likely traveled uh, by boat, by ship, over 3,000 miles or or, uh, close to 5,000 kilometers in his his lifetime, which is a fair amount of time on the sea. Uh, Paul was a seasoned ocean traveler. And he said in 2 Corinthians 11 that he was shipwrecked three times and once spent a night afloat in the ocean. And the thing about that statement in 2 Corinthians 11, is that it was written before what happened here in Acts 27. So actually, Paul, when he talked to the Corinthians next, could up his tally four times, guys, four shipwrecks. Uh, Paul has been around. 
But Paul, Aristarchus, and Luke will actually only make it as far as the island of Malta today. That's here. That's as far as they're going to get. This is the, the land that they are shipwrecked on. It's in this section between the island of Crete and Malta that we're focused on today. This is where the vast majority of our passage happens. And it's here that the ship, uh, a grain vessel going to Rome, uh, will spend over two weeks adrift in the sea in a storm. It's a long time, isn't it? Big chunk of time. Now, I've got to, I want to be up front here. I'm not a sailor. Uh, I've been on a few yachts, uh, not that many. Uh, but I still get nervous when they tilt sideways. I do. But I think, even for I, reading this passage, I can get a sense of how serious things are on the ship. And I don't know. We know Luke was a doctor. Maybe he was a bit like me. He was a bit nervous on boats too. But in verses 13 to 20, Paul, sorry, Luke sets out for us uh, an account that's a, that's a list. A list of things going from bad to worse. And so in, that, in those verses, a wind comes up that they are unable to handle, so they're driven along. They lose control. They are no longer in control of the boat. The boat is just going where the wind takes them. We're told that it was so rough that the lifeboat that they towed behind them could hardly be kept attached. They had to rescue the lifeboat. Think about that. That's the situation they're in. It's not a great sign, is it? And how's this for a sign of things? We're told that they passed ropes under the ship to hold it together. I mean, when ropes are holding your vessel together, I don't think you're in a great place. We're told that they feared getting stuck on sandbars, so they dropped their sea anchors, and they just hoped they weren't going to crash into a sandbar. We're told that they took such a violent battering from the storm that they started to throw some of the ship's cargo Overboard. Now, they didn't throw all of it overboard at this stage, but presumably they were trying to lighten the ship and make it less likely to be swamped and to sink. But there goes some of their cargo, potentially some people's possessions, potentially what was going to pay them, and they're throwing it overboard at this stage. There is more to be gained by losing it, by throwing it away, than by keeping this. And by the third day of the storm, so this is only three days into the storm, uh, we're told that they threw the ship's tackle overboard. In fact, we're told that they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. They didn't lose it. They were wanting to get rid of the ship's tackle. This is the stuff to keep loads secure. This is actually the stuff that they would use to control the ship. Now, if you're throwing that overboard, you're not in a good place. You're not. And I think we can all grasp how desperate things were. They're not thinking about the cargo. They're not thinking about making money. They're just thinking about surviving. What's going to give them the best odds? Now, this is three days into the storm. But Luke records for us in verse 20, and this is a little bit like the cherry on the top, except it's a terrible, terrible cherry. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, here we are in central Hawke's Bay. The sun is shining. This story seems a long, long way away from us. 
But let's imagine for a moment that we have not seen the sun or stars for several days. We've thrown things overboard. We've thrown our cargo overboard. We've thrown the ship's tackle overboard because we're basically ready to throw anything away to try and raise our odds. They are indeed in a dark, dark place. Not just a dark place, but an incredibly wet and wild place. They are not in control. They're not. And seemingly when Luke says that we finally gave up all hope of being saved, he is including himself. He gave up all hope of being saved. He's likely including Paul and Aristarchus. I'm not saying they'd given up faith in God. I'm saying they'd given up hope that they were going to get out of this, that they were going to get off this boat. And I think there's a truth here that it doesn't matter who you are. If you are in the darkness long enough and feel powerless long enough, then you start to lose hope that there is a way out. And probably not too surprisingly in this situation, everyone on board is not eating. Uh, When things are that serious, that dark, you lose your appetite, don't you? I mean, they were also in a fearsome storm, and I'm guessing that even a few of the seasoned sailors had lost their lunch by now. Now, instead of any hunger, any hunger, their despair and the threat of death was consuming them. It ruled their lives. And this is where they are. This is where all 276 of them are, including at least three of God's people, Luke, Aristarchus, and Paul. They mightn't be worried about their eternal lives, but these three men have pretty much given up on their temporal ones. Now, a really important question here is, why has God allowed this? Why has God allowed this or done this? God could speak a word, one word, boom, and the storm would be gone. Wind would be blowing in the right direction. And he doesn't. Jesus himself on the, the Lake, uh, lake Galilee uh, stilled a storm. It's not a, as if God didn't know where Paul, Aristarchus, and Luke was. So why doesn't he do it? Why does he allow this? And we need to consider this because Paul is God's man heading to Rome to do God's will, and yet this happens. Why? Let's remember, they haven't seen the sun in days. Why? And to be a bit of a tease, part of the answer is we'll see uh, why in the next part of the story. I know, terrible. You can read ahead. But John Flavel put it this way, the providence of God is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. And you read Hebrew, uh, unlike English, from right to left. And John Flavel's point is that so often we only see the overarching purpose of God when we can read the story from the end, when we see the end. And he is right. We're not actually at the end of the story here. We're not. There's more to it. So we can't fully understand it. And this is true of your life and your experiences as a Christian. Many times in our lives, we do not know God's purpose until the end. We don't. And we, until we can look back on it and go, ah, ah, now I see God. 
Now I see and understand what you were doing. But hear me here. Sometimes we will not know the purpose of storms until God wraps everything up. I mean everything up. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and I? Well, importantly for us, we need to be people of faithful action. While we can't control the winds and the waves, we can control our decisions and how we act, and I believe we see this in Paul. Paul had been promised by God that he was going to Rome, but that didn't mean he just sat back and waited for God to do it all. It didn't. No, Paul took action. He tried to act wisely. He was the one suggesting, let's not leave Crete because that would be a silly idea and we're putting our lives at risk. We likewise are called to be wise as well. But when we try and be wise, when we act and we are responsible and the storms come anyway, in those moments we have to rest in God's greatness and goodness that he knows the end, he holds us and we will see it eventually. That's a hard place to be though. Really hard place to be. Well, it is in this situation that something remarkable happens. Paul receives a message from God and we get to see how God works through his people in this situation. Verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God of, to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Here amidst the darkness and hopelessness, Paul shares a message of hope because he shares a promise of God. Now this promise, this promise is specific to Paul and his situation. It is not for you. If you go out on a boat, do not recall this. But the point is that God's promise to Paul affected the people around him. Let's remember. There's at least three Christians on this boat. Maybe more, maybe no more. But when the angel tells Paul in verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. I doubt that the other 273 people on board, aside from Luke, Aristarchus and Paul, cared much about Paul going to Rome and testifying. I don't think they gave two hoots about that. But I think they would have been very interested in their lives being graciously given to Paul, their lives being saved. And there is the suggestion here, and I want to acknowledge it's the suggestion or the implication that Paul has been praying for everyone's lives, not just for his life, not just for his two friends' lives, but for everyone's life on board. And God kindly, God graciously answers Paul's prayer. As it says, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. The ship won't be saved, but miraculously, everyone will be. And this is the miracle in the story. 
After 14 days in the midst of a storm, when everyone has given up hope of surviving, a prisoner stands up and says, don't worry, take courage. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve has promised that you will all live. Now that would be ridiculous. That would be crazy unless it happens. Paul had faith in God. And Paul had faith for them, faith to intercede for them. And God graciously, God kindly, answered Paul's prayer that not one of them, not one, including the ones who couldn't swim, would die. Do you know how you are like Paul? There's a lot of ways you're not like Paul, but you are like Paul in some ways. I mean, you aren't going to Rome to testify. You aren't a prisoner. There's a good chance you're not Jewish. There's a good chance you haven't, you know, put Christians to death in your past. But the way you are like Paul, just like Paul, is that God takes you into storms with people. In the midst of hopeless situations, when it is completely out of everyone's control, and everyone knows it, and yet you, you get to intercede for them. You get to lift them up to God. Even though they don't know God, you get to do that. Just like Paul. Yes, Paul had Luke and Aristarchus with him, supporting him. And that's great. Good on those guys. But more than that, the 273 other people on board the ship had three servants of God with them, interceding to God for them. God didn't still the storm, but he worked through it. Paul got to testify to to the God to whom he belonged. And when we're told that Paul broke bread before these people, that wasn't him sharing communion with him. That would be wrong to invite non-Christians to partake of communion without faith. Now, what Paul was doing was being practical. They needed to eat. But he was also testifying. Paul was showing his faith in the midst of the darkness that his God had promised it, he believed it, and so he gave thanks and ate before them. Take courage, guys. You need to eat. I'll start it. I'll lead the way. And despite the remaining setbacks, and there were a few, the sailors attempting to escape on the lifeboat, the running aground on a sandbar, and then just to top it all off, the soldiers planning to kill the prisoners bit gruesome, I know. There was actually an understandable reason for them to do that. If any prisoners escaped, their life would be taken. But the final sentence, the final sentence, despite all, all these setbacks of Acts 27, is in this way, everyone reached land safely. Like, Do we see the miracle of this? Because because of Paul, a servant of God, interceding for the people with him, God gave him their lives. All 275 of them, if we include Luke and Aristarchus. And this is our calling because we will go through storms. We absolutely will. As obedient Christians, we go through horrendous storms at times. I mean it, horrendous storms. And we get to support each other like Luke and Aristarchus. It's our job to be there for each other. This is how we are like Christ. 
but we also get to intercede for others who don't know God. We get to bring them before God and pray for their physical safety, yes, but we also get to pray for their spiritual safety. And God is gracious. I can't say who, I can't say when, can't exactly say how, but I can absolutely say our God is gracious. Rescuing is what he's about. He hears us because we belong to him through Jesus, his son. And even if we are in chains, even if we are in the darkness and have been for days, we still serve him, even in that place. Brothers and sisters, let's be a people who ask why. But let us always let God be God and trust that we will see and know one day. But that day, it might not be today, it might not be next week or next year, but it will come. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who act, that our faith, our trust in God does not mean we just sit back and wait for him to do everything. Our faith in God means we work, we act, we serve him with our lives. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who make wise decisions. Wisdom is godly. Let us make wise decisions about the things we can control and let us look to God about the things we cannot control because there's a lot of each of them. Don't drop the ball with either of them. And brothers and sisters, let us be people who will support each other, that will travel life together like Aristarchus and Paul, that we will lift each other up and be there for each other, even if it costs us, even if it costs us laying down our lives. That's what you're here to do. And brothers and sisters, let us be people like Paul, though. That in the midst of the storms of life, when even the sun cannot be seen, and we would despair ourselves, that we would look to our God, to whom we belong, and lift others to him. That they might know his grace, his favor, and his salvation. Because of us. Because we prayed for them. And this is where the pazes come in. We are not in Colombia, we are not in Bogota, but we can indeed lift them up in prayer. As they said, the atmosphere is dark and people are scared. It is a different time and place to us. It is a different storm to you. Your storms will be different, but they're in the midst of it. And we can pray for them, we can pray for each other. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do give thanks for the example of Paul and Aristarchus and Luke. O oh Lord, going through this storm, this great and fearsome storm, going through a situation where they felt completely out of control, a situation where they felt like there was no hope for them. I give thanks that they went there, Lord, according to your will, and it is recorded for us to learn from, to teach us, that when we are in those places, you have not forgotten us, we are still yours. We still belong to you. And come what may, we can be faithful. We can be faithful in supporting each other. We can be faithful in interceding for those around us. We can be faithful in bringing your hope and your light to those situations. We ask for your help to do that.
We ask that when we are struggling with hope ourselves, that we will hold on to your promises that you are faithful and true. And even though we might fall and even though we might die, you will not lose us. Even though we go through situations we do not understand and we do indeed cry out to you, why God? Why this? Why me? Why here? Why now? And we don't know. But we can know that you are in control. You care for us and you will not let us go. And that one day, in the light of your face, we will indeed know. We will understand. And Lord, we do indeed pray for our brother and sister, Katrina and Carlos. We lift them to you now. We know that they are going through a storm, not just them, but Lord, all the people of Colombia. As they asked, we pray for your protection for them. But Lord, that also there would be a spirit of love to cast out fear that they would have ears of how to listen and how to pray during this time. And Lord, that indeed that they would be a light in that dark place. That they would be voices and presence, presences of calmness and peace. That they would indeed make you known. Oh Lord, I pray for all of us that we will follow Paul's example and intercede for those around us. I pray that we will follow Luke and Aristarchus' example, that we will indeed lay down our lives to serve each other. O Lord, that we would indeed follow your Son, our Saviour. I pray this in his name. Amen.